to start, why don't we do rapid fire intros across the board, 30 seconds or less. Give our audience a quick explanation about uh, who you are and what you do. Natasha, I'll start with you. Hi, I'm Natasha Kiernan. I'm a lawyer by training. I spent uh, 12 years in the New York and London offices of Skadden Arps, which is a well-known M&A firm uh, doing M&A and also a number of other corporate transactions, all in the resource space. So very, very large multi-billion dollar transactions and also some smaller, you know, private equity, different types of things. So that's, that's my general background. Came back to Vancouver about five years ago, and now I've transitioned to do strategic advisory work. I serve on three public company boards, including as the lead director of Empress Royalty, which is why I'm here today. Um, and then I also serve on the board of the BC Energy Regulator. So I'm really happy to be here and really excited about this presentation. Thank you, Natasha. Adrian. Yeah, I'm Adrian Day. Uh, I manage money, both in gold and in global markets with my own firm, and we also manage Peter Schiff's uh, Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. I think that's it. Thanks, Adrian. And Rick, stranger up here. Uh, Rick Rule, uh, failed at retirement, investor and speculator. Uh, now known for rural investment media, formerly known for Sprott. And I'm celebrating retirement by starting a new bank, Battle Bank. That's right. I want to talk about that later, too. So uh, this panel is focused on how to spot a takeout target. It's in response to the many requests that we always get in front of a conference to forecast M&A activity. And that might be a good place to start. Is that, an, is that a good question to be asking? Is there utility in that question? Adrian, you brought up some potential counterpoints that maybe the assumption that merger and acquisition activity equals good isn't always an absolute truth. Um, can you expand on that for me a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously if you own a stock and someone takes it over at a premium, that's a good short-term event for you. Of course, you may have bought the stock at uh, you know $10 and it gets taken over at $9 when the stock's at six, so that, you know, not so good. But, but you know, we talk a lot about the need for consolidation in this business, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, and you know, there's no gain saying that, but not all M&A is good. And I think one of the problems, particularly in this business, you see it in other sectors as well, but particularly in this sector, you see a lot of um, acquisitions that really have no... Um, you know, no particular uh, 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 synergies, no particular th uh, 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 advantages for longer-term investors. They are simply companies making acquisitions in order to get bigger. Now, being bigger can bring its own advantages, but I don't think it's enough for acquisitions. And you only, you only have to look back to, you know, the end of the last big bull market we had, 2010, 2011, 2012, there were so many companies buying things, but it was like a buying frenzy, where there was no particular focus, no particular um, method or, or, or why, why people were, why company A was buying company B. It was simply to get bigger. And the results have really not been very good. One study I, I saw said that of all of the gold mining acquisitions in 2010, 11, 12, all of the acquisitions, over 75% was written off within four years. Written off. And um, so, so that's the one thing. And, and are we going to talk about change of control clauses? Because that's a bee in my bonnet. Can we get to that later? Then let's do it. I'll come back to you. Okay.
Yeah. Uh, Rick, Natasha, anything to add to that? Let's let Natasha go first. I'll, I'll bet clean up. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, M&A only works if the fundamentals are there. Um, you know, not just any deal. You know, two plus two doesn't always equal four. It can, but I think people have to be really honest with themselves when they're doing M&A. And, you know, often in this business and in any business, it can be about psychology. It can be about the ego of a CEO who just wants to be bigger, wants a different listing, wants a certain property. And I think, you know, you just go back to, is it a strong team? Is it a strong asset? Is there really something in this company that our company can value better, that you know, can do better with? And I think that's a really hard decision for a company to make, and they don't always get it right. I will say, you know, I think we're going into kind of a difficult market, and if we do go into recession, most of the M&A deals that end up to actually be accretive for companies are done in down markets. So, you know, I think there is opportunity potentially coming for good deals if people can make decisions on the right fundamentals. You know, you both touched on um, the inspiration behind a lot of M&A being either ego or size for the sake of size. I mean, we're really just talking about near-term share price. That's what we're chasing with a lot of those deals, right? Rick, anything you wanted to add there? A lot. Um, <laughs> what has come before me in terms of discussion has all been right. From an investor's point of view, uh, what I think that you need to look at M&A for is basically the icing on the cake. My experience in investing has been, if my entry point is right, if I buy right, the exit will take care of itself. If the exit is a takeover, that's great. Uh, but if you've bought right, you don't need to worry too much about the exit. With regards to being a shareholder of a company that's an acquire or, that's a very different circumstance. The acquisition has to be accretive on a per share basis. And the management team has to explain to the owners, which is to say the shareholder, why the acquisition is accretive to shareholders. So if my acquire or, which is to say if I was a shareholder of a Ross Beattie company, somebody who owned 15% of his own company, didn't pay himself too much, but lived or died by building the company, the acquisition was likely to be an intelligent one. If by contrast, the management team uh, owned $1.98 worth of stock, uh, had some options, and big salaries, it's likely that the acquisition would be stupid. From your point of view as investors and speculators, pay less attention to your potential exit than you pay attention to your acquisition. If you buy stock like a potential acquirer or would, uh, if you work very hard, you're likely to get lucky. Uh, if by contrast you acquire the way that some of the major gold companies did in the last cycle, you're likely to suffer the same fate as them, which is to save sort of preemptive unemployment. And I, I, I want to talk too what Adrian said about uh, change of control premiums. Uh, what's going on right now in this market is absolutely outrageous and it needs to be talked about. Well, okay, let's, let's jump into that right after this then. I want to get your thoughts. So. You know, 45% of the M&A that occurred, I think you said 2009 to 2012, the assets were written off. Um, Natasha, you touched on, you know, the best time to acquire is in a down market, but I would speculate that most M&A activity happens at the top of the market when companies are cashed up. What are your thoughts on the need for consolidation right now? And I would just say, you know, for some context, there's 250 companies on our show floor. In 2012, there was 596. So, you know, things can change. How, but, you know, given that that's the case, what are your thoughts on the need for consolidation in this market right now? 
Rick, do you want to go first or last? Either. I, I mean, it's a wide open topic. Natasha, any thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely going to be consolidation. I think uh, there's going to be liquidity constraints on a lot of companies. And, and then on the flip side, I think there are certain companies that have done very well and built up a lot of cash. And in an inflationary environment, you don't want to sit on cash. People don't want to be sitting around, you know, losing value. So I think, and people have underexplored. So I think, you know, there are a lot of opportunities out there for smart people to make good acquisitions, maybe distressed acquisitions. And I think we'll see some consolidation. So that, that could sound optimistic if the incentive for M&A is liquidity constraints. Would you, am I interpreting this correctly? I think that's always a major incentive for a company to think about a sale, right? I mean, if you're just at a dead end and inability to raise cash or you're just not going to be able to get the equity you know, value that you think you can get, I, I think that's always a big reason that M&A occurs, you know, or it's a sale of the whole company. Adrian, thoughts on uh, the need for consolidation right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously, in this business, this is a small business. Gold mining, if we're talking about gold mining, gold mining is a small business, and the companies are small. I mean, even the biggest ones are small compared with the giants in other sectors. Uh, it's, it's kind of amusing. I recently was looking at Intel. I was selling some puts on Intel. That's a totally different, different subject. But I was looking at Intel, I looked at the market cap, and then I looked at 25 million shares a day. You know, I mean, this is sort of not in our normal league, right? And there's a lot of, lot of examples or anecdotes we could give on that. But, you know, once you get past the top 10 companies, they start to get very small very quickly. And obviously, if you're a smaller company, your access to capital and your cost of capital is that much more expensive. So... I'm not saying the size doesn't matter. I'm just saying the size alone should not be uh, uh, the, only, the only reason for, for acquisitions. I appreciate that. Rick, anything to add? Uh, I would agree with what Adrian said, but with a couple of caveats. From the industry's viewpoint, there has to be lots of M&A. Because the great sin in the industry is the level of general and administrative expense relative to assets under management. If you look at the junior mining industry as a whole, what you see is a salary machine. Mm. That's really what you see. There are probably 2,000, 2,500 entrants and probably 200 are viable. And we need a lot fewer issuers. M&A or extinction uh, are, are really the two alternatives. True too, in capital markets, larger companies have larger trading volumes. Larger trading volumes mean higher relative share prices and a lower cost of capital. In a capital-intensive business, a lower cost of capital is good. From an investor's viewpoint, as Adrian points out, if you happen to be a shareholder or rather a victim, in an ill-considered transaction, you will lose money, despite the fact that, as a whole, uh, M&A is a virtuous process. Natasha, I want you to touch on the royalty angle because the environment that uh, precedes a lot of M&A can also be quite opportunistic for the royalty business. Um, what are you seeing right now and um, does this strike you as a good opportunity for a royalty company? 
Yeah, and I, I think absolutely, and especially for a company like Empress, which is quite different in that we actually create bespoke streams and royalties, right? We're not trading paper that already exists. We're going to companies doing deep due diligence and offering a bespoke solution. So I think for companies that are saying, where do we go from here? You know, maybe we have a great asset, maybe we're close to production, but we just can't get there in this market, or we're gonna have to issue so much equity that it's not worth it. And I think it's a huge opportunity. I mean, we see a great pipeline, and I think, you know, that's why we're excited right now. Now, can you elaborate on what the bespoke agreement is, just for the audience? Um, in terms of a royalty or a stream? Yeah, I mean, basically we create uh, royalties where you either get a share in uh, the, the profits coming out, or a stream where you have a right to purchase the, in our case it's always precious metals, but a percentage of the precious metals or a set amount of the precious metals over time, so. Okay, now Adrian, I want to get into the, uh, <laughs> the bee in your bonnet, all right? Could you introduce this subject for us? And then I'd love you to elaborate a little bit. Yeah, well, and, and one thing I should say is, you know, we've talked a lot about M&A and we're switching backwards and forwards between larger companies and smaller companies. And of course, there are comments that apply to M&A in the big companies and, and different comments that apply to M&A in the smaller companies. And, you, you know, most of my comments were talking about the larger companies, I guess. But, you know, what you see in this industry are these, in my mind, absolutely egregious change of control clauses um, that reward management or insiders, uh, and they're clearly to the detriment of shareholders because someone has to pay for those change of control clauses. Um, you know, people, I mean, an example of a legitimate change of control would be, you know, a company wants to hire someone to be the CEO and you're hiring him from Australia and he's uprooting his family and his children to new schools and he's leaving a well-paying job and he's flying down to Chile for a job and then the company gets over, taken over two months later. Perfectly legitimate, perfectly legitimate that that guy is compensated. What is not legitimate, in my view, is when, and I won't name the name, but some of you might know what I'm talking about, but when a company, you know, share price goes from $40 to $18, gets taken over at the low price, right? Gets taken over at the low price, and the insiders are rewarded by $12 million and $13 million uh, bonus packages for change of control. Their incentive is to their incentive is to sell the company at any price. To me, the insiders should get rewarded in a takeover. They should get rewarded because they've done a good job and it's a good takeover, and they get a premium, and then they're rewarded like everybody else is rewarded. Just one other anecdote, if I may. There's a company was in discussion, or a, a company was looking around for possible acquisition candidates. This is now at the small end. The other one was at the big end. And they were getting fairly close. You know, we, we have a fit here, there's some synergies. We have properties there, you have properties there. I mean, this is a good, you want to retire, this is a good, good fit. And then the guy wrote himself a change of control that wasn't already in existence, wrote himself a change of control that was equal to the entire market cap of a company. In other words, you pay 100% premium for the company and the entire premium goes into one insider's pocket. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the transaction didn't take place. 
But things like that are preventing the consolidation that we need in the junior space. Adrian, I have to acknowledge this was off my radar. So what can investors do in terms of diligence? Well, this is a pro oh, diligence, you just have to look at the proxies. But what, what's, if you want to talk about the real BMI bonnet, the real BMI bonnet is that we as shareholders do not get to vote on change of control clauses. So a person can write himself at the last minute a change of control uh, agreement that gives himself a bonus equal to 100% of the market cap of a company, and as a shareholder, our choice is we either approve the agreement, we approve the takeover, or we disapprove the takeover, but we have no vote on, on change of control clauses. Now, I, I got to ask, how prevalent is this in the junior precious metals sector? It's an enormous problem. A truly enormous problem. Two recent examples, I won't name names because I'm anti-litigious in my declining years. But I was going to push you, but okay. There, there was a transaction at the end of last year involving a $6 million, little tiny penny dreadful, that had $1.8 million in change of control expenses to a management team that owned 6% of the stock. I mean, absolutely outrageous, but there's a different one. I, again, I won't name the name. There's a reasonably well-regarded TSX company. It's been around since Christ was a choir boy. It's been around forever. Management team owns less than 2% of the stock, and the officers and directors have a change of control fee equal to five times the average of five years' compensation in terms of salary and bonus. In other words, this management team has a positive incentive to see the share price go down so they can do a print and have a $15 million payday, despite the fact that they don't own any stock. Read the proxies, for Christ's sakes, read the proxies. This stuff is all spelled out there. As Adrian says, if they decide to screw you retroactively, there's nothing that you can do about it. Yeah. But most of the time, uh, these folks are stealing from you with the gun in plain sight. All you have to do is read the proxy. Yeah, I feel like there's an opportunity for a website with a list on it right now as you're walking through this concept. So I want to stick with, uh, with um, reasons to say no for a minute longer because it's very important. I think that you know, everybody in this room, if you're active in this sector, you see way more deals than you should ever put cash into. And the most useful thing you can do with your time is, is get to the no, right? And eliminate the no's so you can focus on the potentials and the yes opportunities. Any other red flags, low-hanging fruit red flags that retail investors can look for um, that relate to what we just discussed? Natasha, Adrian? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's the less sexy side of the coin than, oh, this great asset or doing this. But, I mean, if, if you see any hint of, say, anything that is a liability that's hard to quantify, hard to get your arms around, right. I think that's going to scare smart money off, right? So if it's a litigation with even a small chance of a catastrophic outcome, you know, something that's a, an environmental risk, a tailings issue, a permit issue, things that are really unknown, but there's a, a small catastrophic risk can really kill a deal. And I think... It's hard to get that information when something hasn't materialized fully, but you know, read the MDNA, look at footnotes, you know, see what you can find out there about the company because those things can kill an otherwise good deal. And I'm just gonna, Rick, something to add there? Well, I was just thinking, you know, in my tenure at Sprott, I'm, I'm still a director there, but if my memory serves me well, and at age 70 it probably doesn't, 
but I think we did five transactions. And there was a reason for every single transaction. We thought we were getting fair value. We thought we could pay a fuller price than any competition. We didn't want to get into business, you know, in a sort of a bidding war. And we thought that we could run the business that we were buying for one reason or another better than the people that we bought them from. In every, in every, every transaction, there was a strategic reason for doing it where we believed that we could outbid any competitor, but it would still be strategic. And very often, when I'm on the calls around these mergers, uh, it, it turns out that the sub rosa reason that people do the transaction is because they can. <laughs> that's just not, from my viewpoint, good enough. Now, if you happen to be on the side where somebody who can and shouldn't is willing to pay you a premium, you know, if you're on the sell side, God bless, take it, drive on, redeploy yeah. the money. On the other hand, if you're a shareholder in the consolidator, the buyer, your management team better explain to you why it's accretive, what the strategic advantage is, and how they can do a better job than the incumbent. Mm. Usually three questions they can't answer. Interesting. Yeah, I like how you put that, you know, doing the transaction just because they can. I think it's important to understand any transaction, there's a disagreement. Why are you buying what I am selling, right? Why do I think it's overvalued, why do you think it's undervalued? If, we can't, if I can't understand my side of that coin, um, I'm probably in over my head. Um, basic forecast, right? We're seeing a bit of a run here in the metals market. It's been a two-year beatdown. Um, is the sector ripe? And do you expect M&A activity to increase this year? Very quick answers across the board. I'll start with you, Rick. Uh, among the juniors, no, because okay. the financing windows are open. Interesting, uh, okay, just nobody, expand on that. Nobody I mean, what gets in the way of junior M&A is what I call real yield, which is salary and emoluments to officers and directors. If they think that their listing is going to fail and they're not going to get paid next year, they'll do a transaction. Right. If they think they can get paid, they won't do a transaction. With the financing window open, M&A among juniors will slow down. M&A among the mid-tiers, uh, I think, is going to be very, very active because the market has shown that as you get bigger, your trading liquidity goes up, your share price goes up, and your cost of capital goes down. Lower cost of capital, durable competitive advantage in a capital-intensive business. I also think that the mining industry has been kept on a very short leash by the owners in terms of M&A, given all the incredibly stupid transactions that took place in a prior decade. And I think the restraint, the institutional restraint, the adult supervision is gradually coming away from the sector. I think too that the sector has perhaps been too conservative in capital deployments for the last 10 years, which is to say that among the majors and the mid-tiers, the exploration pipelines are empty, the development pipelines are empty, and the assets that are generating cash sort of look like me, you know, past their prime, 70 years of age, long of tooth. And they need to refresh every part of themselves. So I think we're going to see a very vibrant uh, M&A picture in the mid-caps and the large-caps because they have to. Interesting. Yeah, I know Barrick just missed guidance again, and I believe production's at a 22-year low for that company right now, which supports everything you just said. Adrian, anything you want to add on to that? Yeah, the only thing I'll add, I mean, I agree with what Rick said, and, and the shame of it is, the pity of it is, 
the, the sector where we really need most M&A is the junior, the exploration companies, both both we need consolidation among those companies for the reasons Rick mentioned, so we can get the GNA down to a reasonable level. I mean, when you see a company raising money and you see the three quarters of what they're raising is going on GNA, you know, there's something wrong somewhere. Um, and so we definitely need more consolidation among the juniors, and that is the exploration companies, and that's precisely the sector, the area where we're not gonna get it. Mm. And we're not gonna get it for reasons, you know, Rick mentioned. And also, listen, we've gotta realize, very often, uh, you know, Mark Bristow didn't start Barrick. Um, what's his name, Palmer, didn't start Newmont. But Joe Doe started Consolidated Ajax or whatever. It's his life, it's been his life, his or her, sorry, in the case of Empress. But it's been his life. You know, it takes a lot, it takes a lot to give that up. Because often when you have, if, if, if GNA, excess GNA is your problem, and you merge two or three companies together, hopefully not all the GNA stays, and part of that GNA are salaries of executives. So what the point I'm making is that a lot of those executives in, in consolidation have to go. That's reality, and they're giving up, you know, their baby. But that's the area we need the consolidation. Now, Natasha, you've been watching the space for a long time. I want to give you the final word here. Um, any counsel or advice on where our audience can look for opportunity? Uh, you're welcome, and I encourage you to talk your book. But uh, any suggestions on where we could point our crowd today? Uh, well, I mean, of course, I'm a fan of royalty companies, and especially one like Empress, because I think they do the due diligence for the investor. They allow you to diversify. They are a little bit more insulated from inflation because they can keep the GNA very low. Um, you know, that is something that's very manageable for a royalty company. So I think that's a great area. I mean, of course, critical minerals is, you know, very hot right now and has gotten a big push, I think, with this new critical minerals strategy. And hopefully, at least in Canada, where we know it's very, very hard and a very long process to get a project done. Um, maybe some of that will get speeded up in that area, so that might be another another place to look. I agree, the gold market could use consolidation. I'm not sure if it'll happen or not. Uh, I can't predict that, but yeah, I think uh, those areas would be good ones for me. Okay, Natasha, Adrian, Rick, I want to thank you for joining me up on stage today. Let's give them a round of applause. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.